0: Amen. Please be seated. So beloved, we're in Luke chapter 22. And I'm going to read from verse 39. 39, sorry. Um, and we'll read all the way down to verse 53. Okay. So Luke 22, verse 39. And it begins like this in the... this. I'm reading from the NIV. It says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you do not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. When he arose from prayer, he went back to the disciples and he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked. Get up and pray that you do not fall into temptation while he was still speaking, a crowd came up. And, a man who was called Ju- and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. He touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts. And you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour. When darkness reigns. Amen. Amen. Beloved we all know where we are. I mean. uh, The passion. the, The end. Of the story as it were. Or the beginning. Of the story. Depending on how you want to look at it. Jesus has gone through the last supper. He's had this final moments with his disciples. He's had the conversations. He's corrected them on their ambitions and their disputes. He has spoke, spoken to Simon Peter and uh, tried to encourage him and tried to direct him, warned them of that which was going to happen. He's spoken about the uh, that all things must be fulfilled that were written about. I'm pointing to that the, the events that are about to happen, the, the events that are unfolding as he was speaking, had all been pre-written down. Had all been spoken of in the past. It was not something that was happening by accident. It wasn't that things were getting out of control. Everything was Following the pattern and form and direction that God had intended from before the foundation of the earth. Remember what Daniel preached on this morning? How God had uh, formed his plans even before the beginning of creation, in eternity past, when there was all there was in, in the universe, if there was such a thing as the universe, all there was was God in his perfection. Man, Jesus has the discussion with them. And remember, the the disciples in their confusion, Jesus is warning them about the, the, the persecution, the change of the times. He's warning them, as it was in the past, it's not going to be like that anymore. The glory days of when I sent you out and people just accepted you and there was the miracles and the signs and the wonders and the big show. Those days have gone. Now we've entered into something else. Now there is this idea of preparation and uh, of work and of duty, of, of having to travel, of being burdened with some sort of responsibility. And Jesus talks and, and remember he, he says and, and he talks about the sword and that's the only thing the disciples hear. The only thing, the sword, shing. And all of a sudden they produce swords. And, uh, and I explained last time that these these things were really large kitchen knives. They weren't swords as you and I. When you and I think of a sword, we think of Viking broadswords. I hope you think of a Viking broadsword or a samurai sword. But we in the North, we, we know what real swords look like and they're Viking broadswords. They're a big man sword. Well, these weren't like that. These were more like the... the Nepalese curry, the, a single-sided blade with, a, with a, a large bent back and a D-cup over the handle. And they were used, they were like a, a utility knife. Like if you were to Prisma and you were looking for a utility knife, you'd find the What are they called? The Finnish knives? The puka? Exactly like that, only this is the Greek alternative. A multi-purpose knife used for everything from self-defense to peeling potatoes. You know that kind of stuff. I don't think they had potatoes in Greece, but hey, you know. And uh, and they're all ready for a fight. They're all ready to take the kingdom with two swords against the Roman Empire. You couldn't you couldn't uh, criticize their ambition. And Jesus says, "That's enough. Enough for that." It doesn't say it's enough, the swords are enough, but let's stop this conversation. And this is where we are today. Jesus then leaves the place where they are and heads out to his normal place of evening prayer. Now by this time we understand no, from the other gospels that they tell us that that. Judas Iscariot has left the building. He has scampered out. Jesus had given him permission to leave. And he gets up and the Bible tells us in another place that Satan enters him. And he goes out and reports to the, the uh, chief priests, the Pharisees, the elders, the officers, officers of the temple, where Jesus is going to be. He hasn't had the opportunity because he first of all he didn't know where the, they were going to celebrate the Passover meal in the providence of God and then and he was stuck within the group and he couldn't get away. And the first available chance he scampered out into the night to go and inform on Jesus. And what happens then afterwards is the, Jesus washes the disciples' feet and all those things that are contained in the other gospels. And now Jesus He's following the, his normal pattern. He's back into his normal routine. And he's heading out to go to the Mount of Olives. And he's going to the place that we read here. It's called Gethsemane. It doesn't tell us in Luke, but it tells us in, in Mark and in Matthew the name of the place that he was going to, Gethsemane. And Gethsemane is an Aramaic word, it means the place of the press, oil press. It, was believed that Gethsemane was a walled garden, an orchard uh, 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 an olive orchard as it were with ancient trees, you know? and the place exactly where Jesus was going would have been the, the public oil press, you know where you could take your olives and you have them pressed, and you get your own oil from the oil press. Uh, when I was thinking about this week, I was thinking, well, what, what would be the Finnish alternative? What, well, how would we understand it? And I was thinking, well, you know when you go to wash your mats in the river? Uh, have you ever done that? Uh, we've, we've done that. you know. You, and you have this public washing place where you go and wash. It's a bit like that. It's a little bit like that. It's a, a place where everyone could go. It's not a private place, but it's a place that you use at a certain time of year to go. In. And at this time of year, it wouldn't have been in use. And it was a brilliant place to go and just be alone. A good place. Walled gardens, you have privacy and you have the, the 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 smell of the olive trees and just the the it's a nice secluded place to go. But to get there, Jesus would have had to go through the city streets, go through the gate, which is called beautiful in the south wall. And then he would have crossed over what's called the, the brook of Kidron. I, I used to think it was a river. And then this week I, I actually did the research and, and I discovered it was actually a dry brook, like a, a river that was not a river. It was a driver. And the idea here is, you know that on this side of the wall it was a sheer drop. It was all cliffs and... Uh, you've been there, so you know. Flat. And at certain parts of the year, when it rained, all of the water would collect and would go down into these gullies, these flash flood overflows. And they would form rivers, rivulets and rivers. And the water would would flow like a flash, flash flood. And the Kid One was one of those overflow rivers. It, it didn't have a river all the time, but when it rained, all the water washed down into that brook. And then it overflowed. And all of a sudden you had this this large little stream there. But also it formed a second function, which I discovered again this week. That at the altar of sacrifice, you know when they took the lambs or the, the animals, whatever beast it was that they were sacrificing, and they killed them, and they drained the blood from the animal. And well, at that place of sacrifice, there was a drain in the floor, you know, and so when they were washing all the gore and guts and blood and away from the place, they would wash it down in the drain and that drain would go through the foundations of the temple and out to the wall and there was like a little spout, you know, like you see the water coming off, and that overflow pipe fed into the Kidron brick. So as they were washing all the blood, the guts and the gore, out. It would flow off, the, off out of the wall, off the backside of the temple, into the brook, and then all the blood, guts, and gore would flow down the okayed At this time, at this exact time of the year, it was the time of the year that they were sacrificing the sacrifices. The sheep, the goats, the doves, the cattle. It's estimated that perhaps... Over 250,000 animals were sacrificed during this time. That's an incredible amount. According to the written accounts, at times the blood, the guts and the gore were so deep that it would be as deep as a man's thigh. And I thought, well, how tall is the man? Because my thigh is a lot shorter than his thigh. You know, it depends how big the man was. It's all relevant, isn't it? But apparently, the, the blood running down, the blood, the guts, and the gore, as well as the wash, the water that the, they rinsed it away with, because it, it wasn't a wide brook. It's, if you think of like a little V, you know, it's not a big thing, but it's a deep thing. It got five deep. So Jesus and his disciples are there during the time that sacrifice is happening. And at that time, it is most likely that the Kidron brook ran red with blood. The blood of the sacrifices. It was a stark visual reminder that sacrifice was needed. That it took blood to forgive sins. That sin was a serious business. And so Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Gethsemane, which is on the other side of the Kidron Brook. Now, I don't know. Nobody knows. It's past in the history how they got, they got across the Kidron. Whether they used a bridge or stepping stones or whether they waded through, you know, they pulled up their robes and went through knee deep in blood, guts, and gore. I don't know. But they would have had to cross it and they would have seen it and it would have been a visible visible, visible reminder to them of what it took to forgive sins. It would have reminded Jesus of what it would take for him to save his people. When he looked at the blood streaming down. We're not talking, it wasn't just a case of it was a trickle. Or it wasn't a case that it was a stagnant pool. It was an ongoing river of blood. Again, not wide, but deep. Have you ever seen a, a, a mountain stream? You guys are hikers and have been up in the north. Frederick, you've been everywhere. So, I mean, come on. You ever seen a mountain stream? You ever seen a mountain stream that moves slowly? You know... It doesn't happen, do they? They tumble and there's white water and they're moving and you hear this running of water sound. It's not just something you see, but you hear it. Every now and again, it hits a waterfall and you hear the the, the sound of falling waters. It's loud and alive and it's moving. That's the Kidron. It's not this slow SC River. You see the the SC River, it's slow and fat. You know, it just kind of moves like "Ah, okay. We're talking something young and powerful and alive, and it's again a visible reminder. Jesus looking at it and he's seeing that's the cost. The smell of it—you ever smelled blood? The coppery tang of it. Kind of, there's something inside you you just makes the. I mean, who's ever seen that amount of blood? I've never seen that amount of blood. I, once when I was a young boy, maybe Theodore's age, my Theodore's age, so maybe seven or eight, I remember playing on a bridge, I don't know how old Theodore is, but nine or 11, whoever he is, but yeah, I remember playing on a stone bridge in Ireland and, uh, and with some other boys whom I didn't really know And the bridge was a a really old bridge from the 1800s. And it was made with slate. Slate is like a a flat stone that breaks off in flakes. You know, like a razor blade. And uh, we were playing on it. And one boy was looking over like this. And his brother was underneath the bridge. And there was hardly any water in in the, the river underneath. And the boy fell off the bridge. And the bridge was so high, I mean, again, I was a little child, so I don't know how big it really was, but it was big enough that an adult couldn't reach the top. You know, it was one of those really old bridges. The child fell off the bridge, and as he fell, he banged his hands on a, on a sharp piece of slate, and it cut his wrists open. And I remember I was coming round the corner as he turned his wrists, like and the blood shot out of his wrists and painted the top of the bridge. So even today, if you were to go there, you can still see the stains. That was over 30-something, almost. Wow, many, many. over oh, 40. Oh, a long time ago. Wow, many years ago. But even still today, in that bridge in home, you can still see the, the, the black marks of the blood that sprayed the top of the bridge. His brother grabbed his wrists and saved the wee boy's life. But still, I always remember that you know that and it leaves an impression upon you. There's something that it, it, you know you don't forget a picture like that the rest of your life. Forever I couldn't have anyone touch my hands, you know. <laughs> I was like uh, even still today I'm all like ooh because it affects you somehow. And as Jesus is crossing the Kidron Brook, with all of the blood, the guts and the gore that's coming down it, he is forced to remember that which is about to happen. That which is on his doorstep. It's a a visible reminder. Can you imagine the poor disciples? Jesus is all night. He's turned this big festival, this wonderful thing, into this killjoy party. He's just warned them time and time again. One of these going to betray me. I'm about to be crucified. I'm going to die. And they're all like, yeah, what? 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 I don't understand. Are you not the Messiah? Are you not going to like, establish a kingdom? And Jesus is like saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. But don't worry, three days I'll rise. And they're like, oh, I don't understand this. He's warned them that they're not going to experience the kingdom that he that, that they thought that he was prom, had promised. Them, but rather that now they're going to have to be under persecution and difficulty and there's going to be a spirit of resentment against them and it's going to be hard and they're going to have to do it without him. And all of this. And then as they're walking through in the darkness, they come to this stinking river of death. It's not fun. And can you imagine the sense of weariness and tiredness that must have been upon the hearts and minds of the disciples. John MacArthur, he talks about a spirit of fatalism had come over them. A spirit of, what's the point? What can we do to change this? We might as well just give up and accept it the way it is. The Bible tells us here, that on reaching the place, he said to them, the disciples, "Pray that you do not fall into temptation." He says to them, "Not that they should pray that they don't that they are not tempted." I want you to understand this. He's not pray, He's not telling them to pray that they wouldn't be tempted. That's foolish. For as long as you live in that body in which you live. As long as you are a part of this creation, this unredeemed creation, you will always face temptation. Jesus is not saying that they should pray to avoid temptation. He's saying that they should not fall into temptation. The idea is that temptation is like an animal trap. You know, Ever seen animal traps? You dig a hole and put spears in the bottom of it, you know, and the animals... Slith- <inaudible> Technical theological language. Therefore, you're dead. The idea here is temptation is a trap that is before you. It's a dead man's fall trap, whatever they call them. And the idea here is, Jesus is praying that you might avoid the trap, that you might not stumble and fall into the trap. He's encouraging. He's telling them to pray. That they might avoid falling into the trap that's prepared for them. They will be tempted. But how they face that temptation depends on how they pray now. Their success or their failure depends on how they approach that now. It says then that he, that is Jesus, withdrew a stone's throw away. I used to think that that was like, you know, you take a stone and you throw it really far. <laughs> when we were kids, and again, a long time ago, we would stand on the shore. You know, Ireland has a big stormy sea. It's not like your beautiful sea here that you have here. It's not even a sea, it's a lake, really. It's beautiful. It's one of the... When I... When Sarah and I, in 97, first, when I first came here in 97, Sarah took me to the beach and I was like, yeah, I could live here. This is nice. But actually, there's a part of me now that misses the angry sea of Northern Ireland. And the beaches in Ireland are not like the nice beaches here. They're like the beaches in Norway. They have big rocks on them. And as a little boy, we used to eat the stones and skim them into the sea. I'm sure you've done that yourselves we were trying how many waves can you jump over? How far can you put the stone? You know? Can you hit the boats that are going past? That was the game we used to play. And I always thought that this was a reference to like, you know, as far as he could go, but no further. But it's not that. It means like a pebble toss. It means like 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 that far. Not this far, but that far. He's within sight of the disciples. He's within range of the disciples. We could think the other side of the room. They're in the darkness of the garden, the intimate setting of the garden. They've just come down out of Jerusalem through the gate beautiful. They've come down into the Kidron Valley. They've crossed the Kidron Brook with all of its blood, guts, and gore. The remembrance of what's about to happen. And now they enter in to this, the intimacy of the garden. Jesus commands them, encourages them, challenges them, convicts them, warns them. Pray in order that you might not fall into temptation. And then he moves on. He goes a little bit further and begins to pray. Why does he do this? So that they can see. So that he's there. They are witnesses to the monumental battle that is before them. That they they see and bear witness of what about what is about to happen. That they might be moved to intercede. That they might be encouraged to pray. That they might draw strength from his witness. It tells us that he knelt down and that he prayed. Now, Luke doesn't give us the whole the whole story. Luke kind of just covers it quickly. In the other Gospels, we're told within a little bit more detail of what went on there. But it tells us here that he, he got down on his knees and he prayed this prayer. And this is a wonderful window into the man, Jesus. You know, all too often, we make the mistake of Putting Jesus up on a pedestal of you know Superman material, you know Marvel hero, Avenger stuff. We think of him as this untouchable, mighty man, and oftentimes, and I know myself, oftentimes I I think of him just in his divinity. In his miracle one work wonder working power and his ability to walk upon the water in the fact that he's God, we center so much on his divinity that we often forget about the frailty of his humanity. Jesus Christ is one hundred percent God, and he's one hundred percent man. That doesn't make sense. Hyperstatic union. You just don't care, but I care about that. Hyperstatic union, how can 100%, he'd be 100% man and 100% God, that doesn't compute. And for our mere mortal minds, it doesn't. But it, it's, it's a miracle. It's something amazing and divine that we can't process. But here we're getting a glimpse once again of his humanity. He's afraid. He's afraid. He knows with crystal clarity, what is about to happen. I don't think he was eager to face the mocking and the insults and the abuse. I don't think he was eager to undergo the false trials, the mock trials, and have all those insinuations and accusations hurled at him. To have his closest friends abandon him and deny him and to be betrayed by a friend, by Judas, that must have really hurt. And then beyond that, the scourging and the beating and the abuse and the torture and the horrific death, death in itself. hes Fully God. In his divinity, he does not know or has never experienced that. And yet he understands completely everything that's about to happen to him, more so than you and I would. You and I are limited by our understandings of. I mean, I have an arm. Don't ask me how my arm is able to do this. Well, the muscles do that, and I I know that bit, but how does it know? Ah, The brain tells it, but how does it know? We understand, but we're limited in our understanding of sciences. Jesus Christ, in his divinity, understood. He's the one who created the processes by which all things work, and he understood. In the minute detail of what was about to happen to him. We're seeing this wonderful image of Jesus in his humanity. Afraid. And he's praying and he asks. And I think it's a genuine. I don't think it's it's hyperbolic. I don't think he, he's just throwing it out there. You know, like, well, Lord. Whatever you want. I, I, you know, I don't think he. he, he there's such sincerity. Lord, if there's any other way, if, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. If there's any other way, then we see the witness of a perfectly submitted spirit. You hear the fear, you hear the pain, you You sense the reluctance. Doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to have to go through the torture and the pain and the process. None of us would. Come on. I mean, (laughs) yo, take me. No, no, no. (laughs) I love you guys, but no. Because he understands it's not just himself. He's taking upon himself the sin of the world. He's going to become. Sin now, he himself is not sin anyway, but in all sense of purposes, he becomes sin and he is punished in a perfectly sacrificial, substitutionary way. He dies on behalf of others, he accepts their punishment not just for his generation but for all of mankind from Adam until the last man or woman who comes into the kingdom for all of his people for all of those whom God has chosen and yet again but not but your will be done not my will be done but your will be done it's a perfect act of submission there Perfect act of submission. You know, all too often in our generation, I, think, I read this this week and I thought, I don't think it's just our generation that is like this. I think it's a sin that's common to man. That when we pray, we fall into the mistake of praying for things that we need or we want. We need or we want. We're taught to pray for things we need or we want. But Jesus is praying for what God wants. There is a perfectly submitted spirit there. He is demonstrating the correct way to pray. Again, we pray for the most part, and I think it's all mankind of all nations, all men, women, we are selfish beings. We pray for the things we want, things we need, don't think there's a problem in that. I think that, that's part of the Lord's Prayer. Give unto us our daily bread. But there has to be this submission. And Jesus surrenders. But it's a battle. I, I want you to understand this. It's, wasn't, it's not an easy thing. The temptation here for Jesus is to find some other way. To find some other way. The temptation is to accomplish this by the strength of his arm. To establish this kingdom. To establish this glory by some other means. God conquered sin not by slaying it. But by allowing himself to be slain in its place. There is this perfect example of a submitted spirit, and as Christians, we certainly can learn from that. All too often, and again, I 'm talking from myself more than anybody else here, I, you know we, we often tell God His business. We often dictate the terms. We tell God how we would like life to be, and how things are. To be. We try and manipulate God and our circumstances to fall into priorities, parameters the into a way of life that we ourselves would find comfortable and profitable. And we forget about his will. <laughs> We're, we desire the cream. You know, we desire the goodness. But the Bible tells us that God often sends trial and tribulation and hardship in order that His people might overcome, that, that the, the, the goal that's in us might be revealed, that His invisible attributes might be displayed before all of creation. All too often, we, we, just don't, we, we just don't pray, Lord, if there be any other way. We actually give God lists. You know, like, I think this would be better. And if we could do this, and then we could do that. And we spend so much time trying to craft our reality, to dictate our terms of service to God, that we forget about the necessity of a submitted heart. That might well be done but your will be done. We forget that God's plans, which have been written down before the foundation of the earth, they will come to pass. They will happen. And there's nothing you and I can do to prevent them. But will we be a part of them or will we be Apart from them. Do you remember? I think it's in the book of Acts. And I can't remember the guy's name. Just slipped out of my head. I think it's it's not Matthias. It's one of the the Pharisees. And uh, the the Pharisees and the chief priests, they're all scheming how to stop the apostles. They're all like, oh, we could do this, we could do that. And one of the the, uh, Pharisees stands up and says, listen, listen. We need to be careful here because if this is of God, nothing that we can do can prevent it. But if this is of man, it'll just burn itself out and disappear. Very wise. Now, is it biblical because it's from a Pharisee? Mm, I would say yes. Even Pharisees can be right sometimes. All too often we make our plans and our purposes and we try and manipulate God to make them happen. And we, we uh, if we pray at all, we try and enforce our will through and we can experience some measure of success. Do you remember there's the old story about the Chinese Christian who went to America at the beginning of the 20th century or the 19th century. I think it was the beginning of the 20th century. And um, and when he was there, he was being shown around by the Christian ministers. And they were saying, well, here's this magnificent metropolitan church and this is our ministry here and these are our missionary endeavors there. And uh, they made a big show of everything that they were doing. And on the way back, on the boat way back, one of, the, one of the, the missionaries who was coming back to China with him said, so what did you think of America? And he said, it was amazing. It's amazing what Christians can do without God. <laughs> yeah, that's, oh, that's an indictment. That's an indictment. It was a testimony to what they could build by the power of their own arm, by their, the power of their pocketbook, but there wasn't necessarily a submitted heart willing to suffer and to die, to give themselves on behalf of another. Now we began this little portion of scripture where Jesus attending first and foremost to the needs of his disciples. The first thing Jesus does when he gets to the garden is make sure that his disciples are doing the right thing. He just doesn't wander off and find a quiet corner for himself. He makes sure that his disciples are facing spiritually the right way. He gives them instruction. He takes care to make sure that they are being ready. Doesn't leave them to their own devices. Here guys play drafts or chess or stones or bones or whatever they played, you know, don't light fires, eat s'mores, you know, the the marshmallows. He tells them, pray that you don't fall into the trap of temptation. And he goes and he goes and begins to pray and he demonstrates that wonderful, fragile humanity. He is one of us. And he he went that short way, that stone's toss, that little, and began to pray, partly to be an example, to demonstrate that he's just like us. He, He had to be one of us in order to be our sacrifice. He couldn't be a superhuman individual. Couldn't be this untouchable individual he had to be a perfect representative a perfect sacrifice on our behalf and here we're seeing this fragile nature of the Lord Jesus Christ we see this not wanting to we can all we can all relate to that not wanting to suffer the temptation to use our own means. Remember later on, it says in one of the other gospels, that he says, if I wanted to, I could call down, was it 14 cohorts of angels, legions of angels, and wipe everybody out, we could start again. But he doesn't. He is fully submitted to the will of God. In the light, well, you have to say, well, what does that mean? Well, in the light of he understands what's about to happen, The Kidron is still on the other side of the wall. It's still bubbling and gurgling and running and rushing. The blood smell is still in the air. He knows that in a few hours that blood will be his blood. He knows that in a few hours the death that that blood represents. All those animals that were sacrificed will be his death. He's going to die. And yet he does not flee from it. If there's any other way, Father. But he knows there isn't. He trusts that God knows best. He trusts that all things work together for the good of them who love him and are called according to his purposes. And he submits himself. And the Bible tells us that an angel from heaven appears to him and strengthens him. Imagine that. The creator of the universe, him who holds all things in the centre of his hand, he who healed countless sick and raised the dead and created matter, he who walked upon the elements, the, the sea, Being so weak, so profoundly fragile, that he must be strengthened in himself by a created being. That an angel must come and comfort him. That in somehow, in some way, they pick him up. He's so far gone that human beings couldn't rescue him. His Praying, gosh, could we ever pray like this? Wow, imagine that you so extend your energies, so pour out your heart, so earnest in your endeavor that you're literally, there's nothing left in you. You're like the the, the tube of toothpaste that's been squeezed out and there's nothing left in you. Your resources are spent and an angel must come to resuscitate you. That's the extent of his prayers, that's the extent of his energies, that's the extent of his efforts on our behalf. So far gone was he that the creator had to take help from a creation. The Bible says in verse forty four, and being in anguish he prayed more earnestly. Like, Can you imagine that? It's hard to imagine. Being so spent that an angel must come to resuscitate you, to restore you, to comfort you, to empower you, to continue. And then you pray even more earnestly. You expend even more energy. You're praying in such a way, it must have looked like a madman. Must have. Could you imagine watching that prayer? It would have broken your heart. So powerful, the image. The Bible tells us indeed that his his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Have you ever prayed that hard? Have you ever felt the need? Have you ever been so conscious of the danger that is before you? Of the need before you? And again, Jesus isn't just, he's not praying for his own will. He's praying for the will of God and for the salvation of others. He's praying that God would fulfill his plans and his purposes And that nothing should interfere with them. This effort is not for him. It's for us. It says in 45 that he rose from his prayer went back to the disciples and found them asleep. Exhausted from sorrow. Again, this is what John MacArthur calls the fatalistic spirit. They were exhausted with sorrow. They were done. They couldn't go any further. MacArthur talks about there's this spirit, this condition, medical condition, of sensory overload. That the human body is designed to take only so much and then it shuts down. You fall asleep. You, you, you kind of go into shock, as it were. Your body just preserves itself. Self-defence mechanism. You fall asleep. And if you've ever seen small children or someone who's gone through a terrible grief and they're crying and all of a sudden they're just exhausted. They just they fall asleep crying under their pillow or into the arms of another person. It, it, it's their senses, their body, their being can only take so much and then the body for, in a self-defense mechanism turns itself off New you sleep. Think of the story of Spurgeon after the fire in the music hall. And those people died and Spurgeon collapses. And he sleeps for like a day or so, just completely unconscious. They couldn't wake him up. He was basically like in a coma. He was so exhausted and so came under shock. So it was just too much for him to handle. MacArthur points out that the disciples weren't lazy. And the disciples weren't just tired. They were overcome with sorrow. The sight of watching Jesus wallowing. I mean, just going through this torment. And the sense in the garden of this great sorrow. Overwhelming sorrow. I mean, we, we all have experienced those times when people that we love pass on and there's that awkward silence. Nobody knows what to say. Everyone is so, full of sorrow, injured and bereaving, and, and, and there's no words. Every you know, Nobody knows what to say. It's just a sense of heavy grief. It's just awful. It's one of the most uncomfortable, horrible sensations that human beings could experience and here in the garden is that sense of grief, is that sense of of absolute sorrow and anguish and the disciples have become overwhelmed by it and they have fallen asleep again not because they were lazy or they were tired but because their sorrow was so extreme Jesus goes over to them and he chastises them. Why are you sleeping? Why? And it, it's a question more of not as an, an accusation, in the sense of you know you've let me down, but rather don't you know the danger that you are in? Don't you understand what's about to happen? And then he says to them, get up and pray. There's great advice for all of us who pray. You know, my 30 something years of being in the faith and having prayed uh, half nights and whole nights of prayer and even getting up early in the morning and you're on your knees. And then you wake up 20 minutes later, and you're like, oh gosh, I was asleep. Oh dear. Get up, get up, walk, stand on your feet change your position, get ready, revitalize yourself, don't give up, don't give in. And he he says to them again, that you might not fall into temptation. Not that they should avoid temptation, but they should not fall into it. And again, there's a great lesson there for you and I. We will always face temptation. And we've been tricked into thinking temptation is things like you know, uh, immorality, things to do with sexuality, worldly surface things. We've been tricked into thinking you know it's a, the 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 temptation to be angry. There is there is something there, but the temptation here is to. Try and accomplish God's will by your means and methods. The temptation to give up and to grow fatalistic and not even try anymore. Not even to walk in his ways and to keep his what's the point? What's the point? Look at him, he's over there and he's crying and he's bleeding and what's the point? Where's the kingdom I was promised? The danger there is that we begin not to be submitted to the kingdom of God and to the will of God and to the understanding of whatever he wants will happen and we begin to try and dictate terms to God. The trap that is before us is that we begin to try and manipulate and motivate God to give us what we want. And can we not see that in the Word of Faith movement? Isn't that just such a blatant expression of this wicked kind of falling into temptation? They're just straight into it. They jump into it, don't they? It appeals to our flesh, it appeals to our need to do something. I'm a typical man. My wife can attest to that. Uh, If I face a problem, I will move heaven and earth to fix the problem. You know, if someone comes to me and they have a difficulty, someone gives me a job to do, I will move heaven and earth to accomplish my task and to get it done by any means and all means possible within the law. In our Christian lives, God has given us an impossible task. An impossible task. Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. To live a holy life, to preach Jesus Christ to an unbelieving world. A world that is heart set, has its heart set on rejecting Christ and being their own God. A world that seeks to kill Jesus and to replace him. I think the, the Roman Catholic Church that you know, I believe, is a, is a wicked system. When they have their good chance, their mass, during that service, the priest has the is granted the, uh, the authority and the power to pull Jesus down from the throne of heaven and to re-crucify him in a bloodless sacrifice. And in that moment, it says in their their. Their doctrine in that moment think that a mere priest has more authority and power than the Son of God have you have you ever heard anything more blasphemous that the creation has more power and authority than its creator there is this longing in the hearts of human beings to be the master of their own destinies to be the one who has the power to shape and to, and to control what happens in their lives. And to some extent, yes, of course we have. But then, as we, were, we heard today, Joel told us of, of the, his acquaintances, family, friends, cancer, beyond their ability to control. Life throws something, you know, it ruins our plans and our purposes. Jesus demonstrates so very clearly here the importance of a submitted heart because God's ways are not our ways. His plans are not our ways, our our, our plans. The Bible says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so his plans and purposes are above ours. We don't always understand why and what happens. There is always this underlying post-millennial desire within us to build the kingdom of God, to create it here on earth, to make great cathedrals and castles and statues and golden stuff. And not everybody would look at it and go, Ooh, wow, amazing, and applaud. But such is not the will of God. Such is not the will of God. Jesus demonstrated here in the Garden of Gethsemane the importance of of praying first and foremost the importance of staying aware and, and again not praying and understanding that we, we have been taught in our in our generation and I think all men naturally have been taught what I want and what I need you know give me give me give me baby bird ministry like a little baby crying for his bottle That's not the prayer that's being prayed here. It's not my will be done, but your will be done. It's the Lord, help me to be submitted to your will. Whatever might come, heaven or hell, Lord, here on earth, whatever the circumstances, whatever the difficulties, whatever the trials may come, Lord, whether they be good or bad, may your will be done. Lord, may I... Avoid the temptation, the trap laid before me to take the easy way. To take the way that's self-glorifying, the way of ease. Jesus Christ is our example in all things. He's our teacher. We are his disciples, his students. And here in this place, in the Garden of Gethsemane, this intimate, this private meeting, this this sacred space, where we're seeing Jesus at his most vulnerable. We're we're see we the veil is being pulled apart, and we're being brought right into the very heart of his private prayer life. Right there and then we see the vulnerability of the man. We see his dependency upon God. And if Jesus had to pray and seek help and comfort from God the Father, how much more should you and I? (laughs) How much more should you and I? Isn't this wonderful though? The knowledge that if we pray, and if we seek Him, and if we submit, and if we walk in His ways and keep His requirements, He has promised to strengthen us and to walk with us, to never leave us nor forsake us, that we have the, the witness of the Spirit, that He will encourage our hearts, that we will rise up as if on wings of eagles. We will walk and we will run and not grow weary. He will nourish us and help us, regardless of our circumstances. And that his kingdom shall be established. The reason why our church in our age is so weak is because we have done the thing that the Americans did in the 1900s. We have tried to build the kingdom of God in our own, by our own power. We have sought to make empires. Men have prayed, Lord, not your will be done but mine. Lord, not your will be done but mine. All too many people have sought to cash in and become famous. And when they don't get what they want, they give up and they turn aside and they get twisted. Beloved, if we, His people, should simply repent and pray and seek His face, God would once again turn and grant us the blessing. If we would only fall into step with the Spirit and instead of resisting Him, instead of fighting against Him, Lord, this is not what I want. I want, I, I want the. The angels and the disco lights and the, and the smoke machines and the big bands. Lord, ah, I don't want the, the crucifixion. I don't want the cross. Ah, oh, beloved, if we could only step in time with the Spirit. If we could only practice perfect submission. What wonders we would see. What blessings would be poured out upon us. Beloved, Pray pray that you do not fall into temptation pray that you don't get sidetracked or trapped into the error of trying to establish god's kingdom god's will by your methods and means by human ways perfect submission perfect submission is the answer Surrender your life to Christ. Give your everything and hold nothing by your strength and your weakness. God's not looking for supermen. God's not looking for Avengers. God's looking for weak men, weak women who will die for his cause, who will give their lives as Christ gave his life. Either living a living death dying daily unto Christ, saying no to the world, the flesh and the devil. Or even there may be some of us who are called to give their actual life, to lay themselves down as martyrs, who will be called to join that great triumphant march for martyrs and will do so joyfully. You know, if if you read... The re- the Record of the Martyrs. And uh, men and women who have given their lives for Christ. And they go joyfully. Think of Polycarp. Way back, way back. And they... Man of... An ancient man. And they said to him, Well, would you, would you, not, would you not repent? Turn back. And he said, Christ has been good to me these 80 years. Do you think after all this time, I could... Deny him. Beloved, perfect submission begins with prayer. Not prayer that's based on me, my, and I, but prayer that is based upon not my will be done, but yours. The disciples were overcome with a fatalistic spirit, they were overcome in anguish and sadness. They did not understand, but beloved, praise God that you and I have the the wonder of the witness of the Spirit, the Scriptures. We look back in hindsight. We understand better than they did. We know that all things work together for the good. And you and I, beloved, though we're not in the same sense as these guys, we too can be overcome. We can be worn out. We can be worn down. Let us pray. Let us pray together as a, as a church. Lord, help us not to fall into that temptation. Amen. Let's pray together. Our oh Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness and your mercy as always. Lord, we thank you for this witness of the scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for your effort on our behalf. Lord, that you died That we might live. That you battled for us in Gethsemane. That you laid down your life. You fought the battle of the cross there and then in that secluded and intimate setting. That Lord, you overcame all enemies. You laid down your life. You practiced perfect submission. Lord, help us. Lord, help us to hear the words you spoke to the disciples that we should pray that we would not fall into the temptation of seeking to establish your will in our lives or what we desire your will to be in our lives by our strength, by our, our manipulations and motivations. Please, Lord, help us to see clearly and to be able to submit perfectly to your will that we might follow and and work together with you as co-laborers. We do not want to fight against you, Lord. We do not want to be a hindrance and part of the problem. Please, Lord, we ask that we might live unto Christ and die unto this world, that you might receive all the glory, that, Lord, that you might receive all of the worship. Lord, we do pray this for your glory and your glory alone.